Well, the church has an image problem. No, no not that problem. Uh, of course, people think that the church is irrelevant, uh, anti-evidential, superstitious, out of date. Uh, that's a discussion for a different day. What I mean is this, as members of the church, many of us, perhaps all of us, struggle with our image. As a culture, we value people according to their achievements, whether that would be academically, economically, just in terms of their overall character. As a nation, we've become quite dismissive of people who don't match up in those regards. So you'll have noticed the Ferrari a couple of weeks ago in the press about the latest Richard Dawkins tweet where he suggested to a woman that who'd found out that she was going to have a baby with Down syndrome that it was her moral obligation to abort the baby. It's why quite a few people I think in our culture are nervous about the assisted dying bill that's passing through Parliament at the moment. There is a nervousness about our attitude to the weak and those who can't contribute economically. People are valued according to their contribution to society. And I guess as Christians, we can be sucked into that too, can't we? We live in this world, we work in this world, we've grown up in a culture that values people according to their achievements. So it wouldn't be a surprise if we as Christians did something similar, at least some of the time. But here's the rub. How would you measure up? You may be very successful on all of those criteria externally, but here's the real question. How do you measure up morally? When you, when you sit in a, in a quiet space by yourself, when you're honest with yourself about your motivations, your ambitions, uh, your past thoughts and deeds, the way you've lived your life, how would you feel if your whole uh, past life uh, your thoughts, as well as your, your external deeds, was, was played on an IMAX screen for all your friends to watch. I wonder, uh, would you be in the theatre with them or would you be running as fast and as far as you could? Uh, see, the truth is, for, for any of us with, with an ounce of self-awareness, we know that we're not morally successful. Some days are better than others, but we're not morally successful. And I think, perhaps for some of us, we're sitting on things that are really quite scary past lives how do you think God sees you that's where we're going with the psalm uh, this afternoon see it's a terrifying question isn't it if you, uh, if you think that everybody including God weighs you according to your achievements because see God can see you better than putting your life on an IMAX screen God knows you intimately inside and out, past and future he knows you better than you know yourself. And so our, our image problem as Christians is, uh, is not the fact that the world thinks that we're a bit duff and irrelevant. It is that we do not see ourselves the way God sees us. If we think of ourselves, judge ourselves according to our merits, and if we're honest about our own sin we will not relate to God in the way that he has told us to. We will run from him. It will cause a sort of spiritual paralysis for us. I guess that may be the place that David finds himself at the beginning of our psalm. Just look down at verses 1 and 2 with me. Uh, David is certainly a man who knew his own moral failure. Uh, the Bible tells us that he was a murderer. 
and an adulterer. And he says this, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. See, David is in danger of forgetting. Forgetting that God has chosen him for a relationship. Forgetting the basis of that relationship. And David sees a danger with that. He doesn't want to forget, because God's relationship with him is awesome. You can't avoid that in this psalm, can you? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Uh, It's a psalm that begs you to sing out and rejoice in the way that God deals with his people. And so David here is, is stirring himself up to remember. Remember what God is like, and so to praise him. See, he doesn't want to relate to God the way the world would tell him to, according to his merits. Perhaps the way he's telling himself to relate. He wants to relate to God the way God tells him to. Because it's brilliant. The way God deals with sinful, broken people is worth singing about and rejoicing in. So if that's you, if you ever have those days where you feel paralysed by a burden of sin, if you're carrying around something with you day by day, then listen up and follow with me. You need to learn to see yourself the way God sees you, in light of what he's done for you. This psalm is going to move us from being crushed in spirit to praising the Lord. And wouldn't that be a good thing? Let me tell you how the psalm works so that you you know where we're going. Um, Verses 1 to 3, sorry, 1 to 2, the introduction we've looked at. 3 to 5, this is David speaking to himself about his own personal experience, how God has dealt with him. Uh, Verses 6 to 9 then are about how God has revealed himself uh, at the Exodus, where he was first uh, revealing his character to his people. Uh, Verses 10 to 16 then are about how God continues to act today for his people. And then verses 17 to 22 call us to a a complete, genuine response uh, of praising God and devoting our lives to him. That's where we're going. The themes are fairly similar throughout uh, because David is calling different evidences together and saying, this is what your God is like. And we'll look at each section as we go and and see what each each section adds to the previous. Okay, so let's look down at verses 3 to 5. And the point here is that uh, God has blessed David personally. So look down, at verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, there's a who at the beginning of each, uh, each uh, sentence. That's referring back to the Lord in the first two verses, okay? Uh, we're looking at the Lord who does things. And what we find is that the Lord meets David in a deep predicament. And we can put on, on our Sunday face, can't we? Uh, come to church, uh, present ourselves as, uh, it's okay, we're all right. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, fine. Uh, do you see the ball? Um, we show ourselves to each other as, as better than we really are. But you see, David is honest, isn't he? Uh, David uh, speaks to himself. He knows that God isn't conned. He knows that uh, putting on a sham face doesn't work. So he reminds his soul, doesn't he? Verse 3, uh, the Lord who forgives all your sins. David knows that his sin uh, leads to, in his case, illness. Uh, verse uh, 4, verse 3, heals your diseases and goes on in the end, or should go on in the end, 
to the pit. Verse 4. Uh, the pit, the grave, the abyss, the great separation from God. He knows that this great problem of sin is serious. His sin is serious. Our sin is serious. And it has serious consequences. Uh, but David is able to be honest about his sin. Uh, name it for what it is. Because God comes to forgive him. To heal him. To redeem, though, uh, redeem him. The Lord comes with a balm for the hurting, comes with redemption for those who are going to hell. God doesn't forgive David because that's his job. That would be trite and make too little of what sin really is. He forgives because he's committed to David. Look down with me. Okay, Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and uh, compassion. Verse 4. Uh, crowns there is, is surrounds, shields him. He envelops him in love and compassion. Okay, He's chosen David to lay his love upon him. And so God deals with the sin that gets in the way of their relationship. He removes it. Uh, sin is very serious. Don't mishear me. Uh, but God is just as serious about loving his people. At uh, The proper end of sin uh, might well be the abyss. Uh, but not for those trusting in Jesus. Did you notice? Uh, look down at verse uh, 5. The Lord satisfies your desires with good things. Literally fills you up to overflowing with good things. So that your life, uh, your youth is renewed like the eagles. Uh, no longer, uh, verses 3 and 4, disease and the pit in the end. But your youth is restored. Your energy renewed. The Lord comes and meets you and gives you good things. He goes far beyond simply forgiveness. Here is a God who, who forgives the guilt, yes. But because he's uh, surrounded David with love and compassion, he fills him with good things. Uh, gives him an abundance because of his love and compassion. See, David doesn't get a performance review, does he? It's not like a pay rise at work where you go and meet with your boss and they, just, they give you a score out of 100 and on that basis give you a pay rise or a promotion. See, David's performance isn't a factor at all here. God's love is. And so let me say this. If you are struggling to believe that God could love you because of something you've done, something horrendous in your past, know this. God knows your past better than you know yourself. And he loves you anyway. He knows precisely what's happened to you. And he loves you in spite of your past. He washes it away so that it just isn't a factor in his relationship with you anymore. He loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. He loves you because of something inside himself and not something in you. It doesn't rest on your character, it rests in his. And so let me ask you, would you have the same compassion on yourself that the Lord has. See, God knows you're a sinner as well as you do. But he tells you now, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you are forgiven as well. Do you think of yourself like that? Yes, a sinner, but a forgiven sinner. Your performance doesn't affect your standing. And so I wonder, if you've grasped that, how might that affect how you see yourself as you look in the mirror tomorrow morning? A sinner, yes, you can be honest about that with yourself and with God. But a forgiven sinner, 
and loved. Uh, the focus shifts, doesn't it, in verses 6 to 9, to, uh, from the wonder of God redeeming David from his sin to the question of why, almost. Um, the movement is from the personal uh, to the, the time of the Exodus. David is looking back to the time when God at first revealed his character to the Israelites. That explains, I think, the gear shift. Uh, verse 6 reads quite awkwardly, doesn't it? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. It sort of feels like it's, it sticks out. It doesn't really fit with the flow of the, the passage. But actually, uh, this is about God's rescue again. We're still uh, talking about a God who comes to meet his people in their suffering. But here, we're looking back to, to the uh, uh, exodus from Egypt. And that's uh, why we're talking about Moses and Israel. It was at the exodus that God revealed uh, his ways to Moses. There that he announced uh, that his essence, the core of his character, is compassion and grace and love. Verse 8 as we saw last week in the quote from Exodus 34, if you were here. Just as God surrounded David with love and compassion to deal with his bondage to sin, so God meets the whole people of Israel in their bondage to Pharaoh and delivers them because he loves them. He created a nation and he bound himself to them, come what may. Yes, of course they're sinners. Verse 9, there is an accusation against them. They will provoke him to anger with their rebellion. Uh, but the focus here, as throughout the whole psalm, is not on, uh, on anger at sin, but on the one who has delivered them from sin because of his love. That's where the focus is. The Lord has committed himself to love and grace and compassion to people who don't deserve it. Uh, now, that might sound like I'm pitting God's love and compassion against his justice and his anger and some people think that's how it works and it may sound like what I'm saying here is God's love is stronger than his anger against sin um, I don't think there is any conflict in God's character at all and we know that better than, uh, than even David did back here we know how much God hates sin how much God has to punish sin because Jesus came to die for sin we know that death has to happen for sin because sin is so serious but Jesus, taking all our sin upon himself as our representative, willingly went to the cross to die for us. It's not that love overcomes God's anger. It's that God's full anger at our sin has been exhausted against the Lord Jesus. Which means what we experience, what we see, is purely God's love and grace and compassion to us. God's commitment to love his people at the Exodus his commitment to love us at the cross and continues today is to utterly and completely surround his people with love and compassion. That's why David is able to remind himself that this is the way God has always been. The way he's dealt with David is the way he dealt with the Israelites at the Exodus. It's the way God has revealed himself to be. This is who he is. And he forgives sin. And he pours out his love and compassion on us. And so it's right, isn't it, that we should hate our sin the way God hates our sin. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we, we sweep that under the carpet. Our sin should lead us to death. Should, but doesn't because of Jesus. And let me say, if, if Christianity was only for those who merited God's favour, there would be not one single Christian in history. Not one. Not David. Not me. Not you. Uh, we, we're in because God loves us. 
We should hate our sin, but should we hate ourselves? I wonder if that's your experience from time to time, that you hate yourself for your performance. Well, God has dealt with our sin so completely that he is satisfied to treat us as forgiven people. And so if we carry around our sin with us, if we beat ourselves for it, if we refuse to accept his forgiveness, if we allow ourselves to be spiritually crippled by that sin, then we are not treating ourselves the way God treats us. He says to us this afternoon, because of Christ's work, every sin, the worst of sins by the worst of sinners, can be covered so that I can love and pour my compassion out on you. And we call him a liar if we carry around our sin and beat ourselves for it. Will you treat yourself the way God treats you, rather than treat yourself the way the world might treat you for your, your failures? And this, this ability to be honest about sin continues, doesn't it, in verses 10 to 16. Look down with me. David is honest not only about his own sin, but about the sin of all his people. Okay. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Repair us according to our iniquities, verse 10. He goes on to talk about transgressions in verse 12. He's naming all the different words that are used to, to, to sweep up and, and capture all the different types of sins that people commit. And just as he's honest about his own, he's honest about all of God's people. He doesn't hide from it. But again, it's not so that he can beat people up about our sin. It is to magnify the grace of God in verses 10 to 16. In case you've missed it so far, the focus sharpens here again. It is not that God forgives everybody without distinction. Now David uses the word us in this little section from, from 10 onwards. And he's making clear that it's God's people who receive this love, forgiveness, compassion. How, are they, how is the us described here? It is those who fear the Lord. Did you notice that as Rachel was reading? Verse 11. So great is his love to those who fear him. Verse 13, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. That might sound like a bit of an odd thing, given that David is saying, we have nothing to fear because God loves us. It seems like what David is saying is, those who fear the Lord have nothing to fear from the Lord. Which sounds quite contradictory, doesn't it? Let me tell you how I, I, I try to understand this. Uh, if you're not a sort of visual, imagey sort of person, then, I forgive, then forgive me. I want you to imagine a circle. In the middle of the circle is God. And the circle represents uh, those who are in relationship with God through Jesus. In the middle of the circle are those people who are surrounded by God's love and compassion. On the outside of the circle are those people who choose not to be. Those inside the circle are forgiven through Christ. Those outside the circle will meet God's with only their own merits and their own failures to protect them. And they will stand before the, the God of all eternity, whose searching gaze knows our hearts better than we know ourselves, and who is absolute purity. So that would be terrifying, wouldn't it? To meet God on the basis of our own merits. Which is why there is rightly a fear of the Lord. It's, as Jonathan Edwards said, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. A terrifying thing. And so we should rightly be afraid. But the fear of the Lord drives us into the circle. It drives us towards the Lord. It, it drives us to humility, to stop trying to, to be God for ourselves and come to God on his terms. It drives us into the circle. 
God opens his arms and says, I will love you. I will surround you with love and compassion if you will come to Jesus. Stop trying to be good enough for yourself. Accept that you can't be and come to Christ instead. Jesus has made you right with me. Stop trying to save yourself. See, we have nothing to fear from God so long as we remain in the fear of the Lord, inside the circle. God doesn't sweep our sin under the carpet. He sweeps away those who are outside the circle. But those inside are under Christ's protection and are loved and blessed by God. And how blessed? Look at verse 10. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That's surely the point, isn't it? We live in a culture where you get what you deserve. That's what we aim for. That's what the justice system is about. It's what we hope happens at work. Okay? We live in a culture where that happens. Not so with God. And praise the Lord for that. Because we all deserve destruction. We deserve the death that Jesus took. But he removes our sins. And how far does he remove them? As as high as the heavens are above the earth. As far as the east is from the west. Verses 11 and 12. That is as far as the ancient mind could conceive and articulate. As far as it is possible to remove your sins from you, that is what God has done. And we've sung about that, haven't we? Okay? There is no more stain, no more guilt. And that's what God has always done for his people. It's what he did for David. It's what he did for the Israelites. It's what he does for Christians today. Removes our sin from us as far as it is conceivable to remove it. Perhaps some of us here today have been relating to God on the basis of our merits, been trying to be good enough for God instead of accepting complete forgiveness from Jesus. Let me say, that keeps you outside the circle, trying to do it on your own. And God will honour that and he will meet you on those terms and you will be destroyed. It is not a good place to be. Perhaps others of us have accepted forgiveness in Jesus but have never accepted ourselves the way God accepts us. Let me say, you you do a disservice to Jesus and the completeness of his work if you don't accept complete forgiveness and consider yourself a completely forgiven sinner. Will you have uh, the Father be compassionate to you as a child? Did you see that? As a father has compassion on his children, verse 13, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Will you let him have the compassion of a father on you? He knows that we're just people. Did you see that? Verse 14, he knows that we're just dust. We're like the flower of the field that, in Mediterranean context, comes comes up very quickly when the spring rains come and then just as quickly withers under the summer heat. We're transient, we we pass. We are here today and gone tomorrow, full of brokenness, and God knows us in just those terms. He knows our limitations, he knows how fallen we are, and he bears with us. He loves you as you are. Will you come to him? Will you learn to love yourself the way the Lord loves you? See, however great our sinfulness, the love of God swallows it up, takes it away, leaves no trace. Perhaps others of us, we've been Christians for a long time and we've begun to forget the way David has begun to forget that God relates to us on the basis of his love and not our inherent goodness. So there's a danger, isn't it? We become Christians and we know our sinfulness. And as we grow up as Christians, we get to be more godly. And as we grow more godly, we can start trusting in our goodness and not in the Lord's goodness. Let me say that is a slippery slope out of the circle. Don't become religious, trusting in your own goodness. 
Trust in the Lord Jesus and, and embrace the fact that God accepts you on his basis and not your own. So I guess there's, there's a, a, a number of ways in which we're all going to want to come to the Lord and confess our sin of wanting to be uh, in charge of how God sees us. Come to him. Uh, don't let pride keep you outside the circle. Don't let pride take you outside the circle. Come to him for love and compassion and treat yourself in the same way. Uh, we all need to learn to love and have compassion on ourselves in the same way the Lord does. Not in a narcissistic way, not in a self-love kind of way. But we have to accept who we are. Sinners, yes, every one of us. Every one of us a sinner. But sinners who are wonderfully forgiven. That is our unchanging status from day to day and year to year as Christians. Loved children of God. If time permitted, I'd love us to explore together how how understanding that I am a sinner saved by grace and every Christian in this room is a sinner who is deeply loved and surrounded by love and compassion of God would change how we relate to each other in our marriages, as parents, as friends. When we sin against each other, would we repent? Would we forgive each other quickly? Would we treat each other with love and compassion, accepting the hurt that comes from being sinned against and love each other anyway? Maybe that's a conversation to have in the pub afterwards. I want us to keep focusing on God's verdict on us. Because there is one last piece of the puzzle, isn't there? Verses 17 to 22. Uh, one last element of this dynamic of relationship that uh, can cause us some problems if we're not careful. See, we have this great liberty as Christians. Our performance doesn't matter. It doesn't affect how we relate to God. And yet, we could then use that liberty for all sorts of things, couldn't we? Our performance doesn't affect our status with God uh, or should it with, with each other, but we're not at liberty to do whatever we want, are we? We're at liberty, uh, set free from sin, to, to love and serve the Lord. And doesn't, David begins, doesn't he, in verse 17 here, making a contrast, uh, contrasting man uh, in verses sort of 14 and 15 and 16, who is so transient he passes like that. Uh, with the God who is from eternity past to eternity future. The God who loves his people, who is in heaven, not moving from his place, not passing away the way man does. Permanent, with a settled determination to love you, and has loved you since before the dawn of creation, and will love you when creation has passed away. A love that's fixed on you. He's loved you for all that time, when the world says, weigh your merits, remember that it's a fad and it's passing. God's ways are eternal, so listen to him. But here's the thing, isn't it? It's not just listen to him, it's obey him. Obedience doesn't get us right with God. It doesn't keep us right with God. Jesus does that. But did you notice that the theme all the way through from 17 to the end is one of obedience? The right response to God is one of obedience. We listen to God not only because he tells us about forgiveness, but because he tells us everything. See, if, if verse 17 tells us God loves those who fear him, then grammatically verse 18 tells us what those people are like. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. That is, remember at his covenant, how he chooses to relate to us through Jesus and not through our own merits. And who keep his precepts, who live according to the covenant. 
See, if, if being a sinner is uh, someone who rejects God's rule to live our own way, uh, then God has uh, set aside our sin, uh, forgiven us, but not so that we can continue in sin. It would be a weird thing, wouldn't it, if we were set free from rebellion in order to keep living in rebellion. It's a ridiculous concept. Don't get me wrong, and please don't mishear me, our obedience doesn't establish a relationship with God. God chooses to do that with his love. And let me say, we will fail, every one of us, every day, to live the way God wants us to. And so every day we come back to the dynamic of trusting in Jesus for forgiveness and rejoicing in the fact that God treats us as his beloved child. But that repentance brings joy. When we're religious people, we can be scared to come to God and seek forgiveness because we think maybe this sin is the one that's the straw that's broken the camel's back and God won't want to know anymore. Uh, But the Christian has this amazing joy that we can come to God and know that our failure doesn't affect how we stand with God. Rather, our our obedience is about our our godly response of a loving heart to a loving Father who loves us deeply. God has freed us from sin, from the consequences of sin because Jesus died, and from the rule of sin so that we can uh, obey him now. We grow daily to be more like Jesus. That's the mark of his people. In fact, look down at the rest of the passage. It's the mark of every being who acknowledges God. So in verse 20, look down. Praise the Lord, you his angels. They're his angels, and they're his angels because you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word, do you see? The angels are marked out by two things. They obey God, and they praise him. So too, verse 21 the heavenly host, which could be the stars and the moon and the planets, or it could be the heavenly armies. The word can mean both things. It's not entirely clear here. But whichever it is, they do his will, do you see? They obey him and they praise him because they belong to him. Or or the general call in verse 22, praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Do you see? It's a call to that which belongs to God to recognise his rule, his dominion. And this is where I think the psalm bites for us. This very last line, David comes back to the refrain, doesn't he? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you see, all the way through this section, it is his angels, his heavenly hosts, his works, my soul. David is begging his soul to align himself with with those that belong to God. He's saying, will you be his too? Will you recognise his rule? Will you obey him? Not that it's a burden, not that his status rests on it, for that's secure, quite the reverse. Do you see, those who delight in God, delight to obey God, have joy and sing his praise. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Living in obedience is one and the same as living a life of praise. Everything and everyone who is truly given over to God will know the joy of being his, resting secure, loved and protected, delighting to praise his name. When David forgot God's benefits, when he forgot what it was to be in relationship with God, David was burdened. There was no praise because he was trapped by his sin and failure. But now, you see, he can come to God and he can praise him. He reminds himself of how incredible this God is. Incredible salvation is, and he can praise God. As David reflects on the God who delivers from sin who surrounds him and us with eternal love and compassion, who frees us from the burden of performance to the security of being children of God, well, he shouts forth hymns of praise, doesn't he? Praise the Lord. 
too right, praise the Lord. He pours out words of delight and he pours out deeds of delight in obedience to the one who renews him like an eagle, who fills him with good things. So friends, will we embrace God on these terms? Will we come to him as he calls us to? Will we know ourselves as God knows us? And will we praise him with our mouths and with our lives? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, praise you so much for your mercy, for your love and compassion that has found us and made us uh, your people, your precious children, uh, by the death of Jesus and by faith in him. Lord, please, uh, I pray for any here who are really burdened by, uh, by sin in their past uh, to cling to your promise that they are uh, totally forgiven if they're trusting in Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd help us to know ourselves as you know us, Yes, as sinners, but as sinners with complete forgiveness. Will we relate to you, to ourselves, to each other, as those who know this great and precious gift? And Father, would you cause us to praise your name? Amen. Amen.